Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, federal law says students with disabilities have a right to a free public education. But when is the school district allowed to end those services? State policy says 21, but a recent court ruling found this, quote, grossly violates federal law. We'll talk to Disability Rights Connecticut, the group that filed the lawsuit, about what this means for students with disabilities. First, who doesn't love a fact check? Connecticut Public Radio has a new investigative unit which is rolling out periodic fact checks. To tell us more, in studio with us, Walter Smith Randolph is the investigative editor and lead reporter of the Accountability Project at Connecticut Public. Walter, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Glad to be here. I should also say welcome to Connecticut because you moved here from what state again? I moved here from Cincinnati. But you know Connecticut well, uh, being a New York native, correct? Yes, born and raised in Queens, and my fiancé actually uh, went to Choate, so I know a lot about Connecticut. (laughs) Well, we are glad to have you, and I'm so happy to talk with you about the new accountability project, something that our listeners and supporters helped fund, an investigative unit at Connecticut Public. Tell us about it. Sure. So we are a three-person team that is looking to tell investigative stories and shine a light on all things Connecticut. I mean, we're looking at the economy. We're looking at housing. We're looking at education. We're looking at holding uh, government officials and politicians accountable. Um, We're doing these fact checks because you often hear a story or you hear some type of narrative and then you start digging into it and you say, well, maybe that that isn't quite right. Um, So, yeah. So we we are excited. Uh, Again, a three-person team. I come from a local TV news background. We have Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, who's our investigative reporter. She was most recently at the Connecticut Mirror. She's been covering Connecticut for a decade. And then we also have Jim Hadadine, who joins us from NBC Boston, uh, where he was an investigative producer, and now he is our data reporter. Uh, Jim is our numbers man. Anytime we need some data, anytime we need to find some numbers, he finds it for us. Well, it's good to hear when someone from Boston moves to Connecticut. So, so glad <laughs> to hear about uh, Jim coming on board. And our listeners definitely know Jackie Rabe Thomas from her excellent reporting at uh, this Connecticut Mirror, especially when it comes to housing. So uh, what a great team, Walter. So this this uh, periodic fact check that you're rolling out, the first one tackled a case in New Britain where a jogger was killed in a hit and run in June. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, so basically there was a uh, deadly crash, a hit and run, where um, allegedly a juvenile stole a car uh, and then mowed down a uh, marathon runner who was out on a run. It was caught on camera. Um, Unfortunately, the marathon runner uh, was killed. And so this was kind of the tipping point because there has been an uptick in vehicle thefts and car thefts, but it's across the country. But the rhetoric that we were hearing, especially from state Republicans, was that we need to reform the juvenile justice laws here in Connecticut because that is the reason why we're seeing uh, this uptick in crime. Um, And so when we started digging into the data and looking 
at the numbers, we we found that, you know, that's not necessarily true. While car thefts are up, they are up across the country, including in states that haven't implemented, you know, the same reforms. The data shows that, you know, overall car thefts were up 41 percent from 2019 to 2020. But, you know, it was difficult. It's difficult to see how you could blame juveniles for all of these car thefts because, um, you know, about 10 percent of these cases are actually solved or people are arrested. And so we started looking at the numbers. I mean, we even got numbers back from New Britain yesterday, um, you know, that that has juvenile crimes in general. And last year there were, you know, 83 total juvenile crimes of burglary, larceny, criminal mischief and robbery. It was 83 in 2020. In 2019, it was 74. But back in 2018, it was 144. Um, and so you can see that, there, yes, there has been uh, an uptick, but it isn't this explosion that some people are making it out to be. Now, when we talk about this juvenile suspect who allegedly um, stole this car and hit this uh, marathon uh, runner who was, uh, again, jogging in New Britain, there was also a lot of focus on the fact that he'd been in the system. Arrested multiple times, Walter? Yes, uh, arrested multiple times. I believe he's 17 years old and had been arrested um, 13 times previously. Um, and from for from what we're hearing, a range of different crimes. And so uh, people were pointing to this saying, like, this is the reason why. And so when we looked at some of the numbers, um, especially with uh, juvenile uh, juveniles who have been arrested for car thefts, we found that, you know, one in six were repeat offenders. But it was it was sounding like coming from some folks that, you know, it's just repeat offenders. They're coming into the system and they're being released. Um, it used to be that you could uh, when a juvenile was arrested, say, on a Friday, they would be held until Monday uh, when the courts would reopen. But, um, you know, because of some of the reforms back in 2018, you can only hold them for up to six hours. And so they were saying that this is one of the reasons. And um, there are some other issues. For example, when a judge is uh, maybe charging or, or holding a juvenile, um, they can't access the entire criminal record, you know, because of the judges looking at their region, right? And so they're looking at the criminal record for the region. But, you know, some uh, some politicians are saying we should you should be able to see it from across the region. So there's a, there's a couple different things. Uh, state Republicans were calling for special sessions, special session to address this. And then they were also talking about police accountability. And then Democrats were also um, pushing back against this. And we talked to a number of Republicans. I believe that we also have some sound from State Representative Craig Fishbein on this. Kids are not dumb. And, you know, when their neighbor down the block steals a car successfully and is seen as a hero um, around that neighborhood, does that more activity or does it foster more activity that's interesting so representative fishbein and others saying that kids are getting the message that they can do these activities these crimes and there aren't any repercussions yes that's basically that's basically what they're saying um about that you know but we also we also did we also had a uh, representative candelora on uh, all things considered about two weeks ago and you know as the numbers came out and as we talked more into the story some of them did concede that you know th- this rash of crime this uptick in crime maybe isn't juveniles aren't to blame entirely on this. Maybe the whole system is entirely to blame on this. They have acknowledged that this is, you know, this is tied to the pandemic. When you look at the numbers across the country, crime has gone up, but it also has been tied to the pandemic.
I also believe in your reporting, you and your team, 2019, like record lows when it came to, to car thefts, Walter. Yeah. If you go to ctpublic.org, we have a um, we have a chart on there and you can show you can see uh, that in 2019, there was five thousand nine hundred ninety ninety six um, motor vehicle thefts in Connecticut. We have it from 1990 to 2020. So if you look at 20, if you look at 2019, you see a historic low and you see it spike up a little bit for 2020. We don't have all the numbers for 2021. So we don't we don't know what that looks like. But if you go all the way back to 1991, there were twenty six thousand. So we're talking about 1991, 26,000 motor vehicle thefts. And then you can see in 2019, there were 5,000. And then 2020, there looks like it's uh, 8,000. So, yes, there has been a spike, but it isn't out of control like it used to be. Again, you're hearing Walter Smith Randolph. He's the investigative editor and lead reporter of the Accountability Project. This is the new investigative unit at Connecticut Public. Uh, Walter, uh, you know, when we have talked about this issue uh, in our state, you know, it wasn't just GOP lawmakers that have been complaining about car thefts by teens. You know, back in 2017, former state's attorney Kevin Kane came on the show and he talked about his belief that there should be more discretion on detaining juveniles who may be a danger to the public and potentially sending them to adult court if the case warrants. You had said earlier that there have been changes to how long uh, a juvenile can be detained. And so it's really up to the legislature uh, to make some of these changes moving forward. Yeah, it's it's up to them to figure out how, you know, they will reform the juvenile justice system if they do want to, you know, change the detention. Um, and, and there are some other questions, you know, should these judges be able to see the criminal records from across the state? You know, would that factor into how long they will detain a juvenile? Um, you know, but we also have questions for, um, you know, f- what about this kid? What about the system? Mm-hmm. You know, if he was arrested 13 times, why? What was going on? Did, you know, did they look for help? So we are trying to track down people to ask those questions as well. You know, we, of course, want to hear from the Marathon Runners family, but we also want to hear, you know, from the other side, you know, did this, do you think the system failed this kid? Um, are there other kids out there like that? What exactly is going on and what do you think lawmakers should do about it? And if you talk to any advocate uh, who works with juveniles and and tries to keep them out of the system, the best way to keep them out of the system is to not have contact with the juvenile justice system in the first place uh, to prevent recidivism among young people. And so wondering about the services that are available in the community that can help children. Right. And that's something that Democrats were talking about. They were talking about, you know, they want to put put more money into um, some youth programs to get kids off the streets and to make sure that there isn't, you know, recidivism, that they that they aren't reoffending and that they're not just going back out there and committing more crimes. There's also another layer to the story. And when we think about uh, the fact that uh, there are particular teens who are going into communities and stealing cars, but the idea that the way the technology is with cars, people leaving their fobs in the car, Walter. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a <laughs> that is I don't mean to laugh, but that is a, a Ken Barone. Um, he crunches the numbers at Central Connecticut State University. And he says that, you know, yes, car thefts have ticked up across the country since about 2013. And he says that's around the time keyless ignition technology became more widespread. So, you know, for, for example, I have a car. It has a key fob. Uh, I laughed a little bit earlier because when I used to work in Kalamazoo, Michigan, one Friday night, I ran into the store and I left my car running and I thought I, I thought I, you know, closed. I thought I locked the door and I came out and somebody was driving my car. And, oh, no. and they and I thought and I called 911 and we almost did a story because I was like, oh, my God, it's a car. Someone stole my car. And then it turns out that. 
he actually was borrowing his sister-in-law's car. I drove a dark Nissan Murano, a, a black one. She drove a dark green one. He got into the wrong car. He thought he left it running. And next thing you know, uh, he was being pulled over because he allegedly stole the newsman's car. But he didn't. It was because I didn't lock my car. I had my key fob and I, and I left it running. So, you know, Ken Barone, when you talk to him, he's, he talks about this and he says, yeah, you know, car thefts are up. But you, it's also tied to when more and more cars started having that key fob technology. And don't leave the fob in the car. <laughs> don't leave the fob in the car. Lock your door. Turn the, mm. turn the car off. You know, uh, things like that. So you had mentioned earlier that we're seeing a spike in car thefts uh, nationwide, among other crime, especially during this pandemic. So is there any conversation? Do you know, are automakers looking into this about, you know, how to avoid these uh, car thefts because technology has changed, Walter? Yeah, we haven't we haven't dug into that layer of the story yet about what car makers are doing. But, you know, Ken Barone, that's his, that's his big thing. He says mm-hmm. that, you know, automakers should address address this. There should be uh, some type of solution to this, because um, when you look at the numbers, you can see that, again, it's tied to when, you know, people started getting more and more key, cars be started having more, you know, keyless entry and having the fobs. So what was the reaction from listeners uh, with this fact check? What have you been hearing from people? Uh, you know, people appreciate it. People appreciate that there, you know, there is a team of investigative reporters who are looking into this. Uh, they appreciate uh, that, you know, um, you know, we're crunching the numbers, we're holding politicians accountable, and we're, we're digging into the rhetoric. But we always want to hear more from people. Um, so you can, you know, fo- follow us on Twitter. I'm at Walter Reports on Twitter. Jacqueline is on Twitter at uh, Jacqueline Rabe. And then we also set up a tips email. Uh, I guess nice. you can call it kind of a hotline, but it's uh, <laughs> tips at ctpublic.org. We're always looking. Um, to to look for stories. Uh, if you need a story that you think needs investigating, please email us at tips at ctpublic.org. That's good to know. And so what's next for the Accountability Project? What topics are you looking into, Walter? Now, now Lucy, if I tell you... <laughs> You know, a little preview, a little preview. Okay, all right. We have another fact check coming out this week. Uh, I think last week everybody heard that the governor was giving out some raises, and so we're looking into uh, into those raises, who got what, and 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 what percentage it is, and uh, tying it to some of the other raises. So we have that fact check coming from the Accountability Project. We are also looking into the Tweed New Haven Airport. We know that there is an expansion deal going down there. Uh, you know, we really haven't. There's some community conversations, but we really haven't been able to see. Uh, some of the language in the contract. So we are trying to uh, get some of those contracts and get some of the language from through freedom of information requests and talk to neighbors around there and also talk with the airport about, you know, what they expect to see, how much money is being poured into this and what that airport is going to look like when this project is over. Well, those sound like uh, great things to be looking into. I know our listeners will be interested to hear what you and your team find out, Walter. We hope you come back for another fact check soon. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That's Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter of the Accountability Project at Connecticut Public. You heard him. If you've got something you want the team to look into, it's tips at ctpublic.org. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, a federal court ruling has overruled a state education regulation that dictated when school districts can stop giving special education services to students. We hear from Disability Rights Connecticut, the group that filed the lawsuit. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, Director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Federal law says students with disabilities have a right to a free public education. But when is the school district allowed to end those services? State policy says 21, but a recent court ruling found this is, quote, a gross violation of federal law. So what does this mean for students with disabilities in our state? Joining us now on Zoom is Casey Considine, supervising attorney at Disability Rights Connecticut. Casey, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much. You can join us as well if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's put this in personal context. I understand the current lead plaintiff was referred to as AR. Tell us about this person and what their educational experience was like. So AR is uh, an incredible uh, young woman now. She has mental health disabilities, and even though she had been identified as eligible for special education since 2014, um, she really was not receiving um, the individualized education that she needed to make progress towards her high school diploma. By the time that she was a sophomore, um, as a result of her mental health disabilities, She'd only earned about nine credits total towards her high school diploma. Um, Once she was able to receive the appropriate individualized supports and education in the right setting, her ability to earn credits and make progress towards her high school diploma increased substantially. Um, And shortly before her 21st birthday, she was uh, a few credits shy of earning her high school diploma. the way that the state law in Connecticut operated, her ability to continue in her special education program would have ended at the end of the school year in which she turned 21. So for her, that would have been um, last April in 2020. Um, Luckily with this lawsuit, she was able to continue working towards her high school diploma and was actually able to earn it and complete uh, all of the requisite credits and Um, was able to graduate with her high school diploma uh, this past spring. Well, that's good news. Uh, So when I started this segment, I talked about how all students are entitled to a free public school education. And so uh, most of the time that's children attend school through age 18. But if we're talking about students who are non-disabled, they're also able to continue their education long after that. Can you explain? Yes, so Connecticut offers a number of wonderful opportunities for um, anyone (laughs) to go back and um, 
earn their high school diploma or earn um, sort of an equivalent degree. Um, and those opportunities are available to students who um, are between the ages of 21 and 22, students who are older than 22. Um, they have the ability to earn their high school diploma um, and and that's wonderful and great. Um, we were concerned that that was not an opportunity afforded to um, special education students, uh, which is what prompted us to bring the lawsuit. So the question of the case revolving around GED completion opportunities for adult students, the court had to answer this was also considered public education, Casey? Yes, so um, under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, a state is required to make a free and appropriate public education available to students between the ages of 3 and 21 inclusive if it's not contrary to um, the practice of the state. And where we had um, these great programs that were available to students without disabilities, um, from our point of view and the court agreed, um, it wasn't contrary to the practice of the state to make an education, public education available to students um, beyond the age of 22. And so we asked the court to recognize that students be able, uh, students in special education be able to continue until their 22nd birthday. Um, and it was uh, something the court certainly looked at and determining that it, it was not contrary to practice in Connecticut to make those educational opportunities available uh, potentially for free <laughs> um, to other students throughout the state. So why was Connecticut using a different standard than what the federal law uh, laid out? I mean, how do other states handle this with special education services, Casey? So I, I can't speak for why this had been the practice in Connecticut for so many years, but I can tell you I'm really happy that moving forward it will not be the practice in Connecticut because students like AR will have an opportunity to finish their high school diploma, an opportunity to go for potentially, um, in AR's case, it was nine more months of her education. Um, in other states, there have been similar lawsuits. Our co-counsel in this case, um, an attorney named Jason Kim, has um, brought lawsuits uh, challenging similar state laws in both Hawaii and Rhode Island um, and federal appellate courts in um, both of those states uh, reached the same decision that um, the appellate court for Connecticut also reached. Um, so. I certainly don't have an answer for why this has been the practice for decades, but um, I'm certainly happy to have worked with co-counsel that is making sure that students in many states throughout the country continue to have an opportunity to work towards their education and their high school diploma until their 22nd birthday. Again, this is where we live. You're hearing Casey Considine, a supervising attorney at Disability Rights Connecticut, talking about a recent court ruling that found a state education law grossly violated federal law by enforcing age limitations to special ed education services. Uh, originally, uh, Connecticut uh, uh, said those services ended at the age of 21. So, Casey, this new law, again, to recap, uh, will allow these services to continue until the individual is 22. Correct. Right. They remain eligible for special education um, if they haven't yet earned their high school diploma until their 22nd birthday.
Now, we learned about AR, the lead plaintiff, but this case originally started with a different plaintiff known as DJ. Can you tell us about this student's situation? Of course, yes, DJ was our original name plaintiff and class representative. Um, he's a student with intellectual disabilities. And um, even though uh, his public school said he had earned his high school diploma in 2013, they continued to provide um, special education programming to him um, until 2016, so for an additional three years. He was in what's sometimes referred to as um, a transition program um, under the IDEA, the federal law for students with disabilities. The idea of transition programming is that um, students with disabilities should have an opportunity to prepare for further education, employment, and independent living. Um, and in DJ's case, he was really interested in pursuing graphic design, um, and he he wasn't in a program that really gave him those opportunities, but um, had he been in such a program, he would have received what the um, IDA envisions, which is an opportunity for students to be prepared for what's next after graduation, whether they get an opportunity to have some employment experience so that they're prepared to enter the workforce, or whether it's an opportunity to pursue what DJ was interested in, graphic design, so that he could be ready to enter a post-secondary educational environment. And how is he doing today? I believe he's doing well. Um, he. Um, he certainly deserves a lot of credit along with AR for this big win in Connecticut. Um, and although he wasn't able to continue until his 22nd birthday the way AR is, um, they both definitely deserve all of the credit for this incredible win um, that's really going to have a meaningful impact for potentially thousands of students in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. That was my next question. You know, how many Connecticut residents are likely to be impacted by this? Because moving forward, students who missed out on educational opportunities between that age of 21 and 22, they're eligible for compensatory education. So what will that look like, Casey? It's something that we have to um, go back and, and work with the court and with the State Board of Education to um, figure out. <laughs> um, we will be sharing details on our website um, as we have them, and we certainly welcome the public to contact us, um, particularly the students who are in this class, the students who were improperly exited from their special education program um, between 2014 and, and 2020. Um, we want to hear from them about what would what compensatory education would be meaningful to them um, because we have not yet worked out the details of what that will look like. Now, the state and school districts need to follow this law, but what will be the impact on local school districts, uh, Casey, in terms of how the state will support districts uh, for those cases where uh, students need that additional time? I don't have a ready answer for that. I think the State Board of Education would be in the best position to respond to any questions about how they will support the local um, school boards and the local boards of ed and making sure that students um, can remain eligible until their 22nd birthday. Um, but I'm certainly, again, I'm certainly happy that this opportunity is um, now reinforced with the court ruling that students, as the IDEA says, 
are actually able to remain eligible for special education until their 22nd birthday. Mm. So with individuals who are listening right now who they think someone in their family may be eligible, you know, how should they go about uh, reaching out to you or to their local school district for these services, Casey? So certainly people are welcome to contact our office at Disability Rights Connecticut. There also will be, as part of um, the formal court process that will work through, something that's called class notification. Um, and so once we um, work through identifying all of the individuals who are impacted by this ruling and eligible for compensatory education, they will receive um, notice. <laughs> um, and that will give them an opportunity to respond to the offer of compensatory education. Could this be appealed again? Um it's possible. That's up to the state. I, I really hope that the state doesn't pursue a further appeal um, because, again, this is this is really a, a win for students with disabilities in Connecticut, giving them an opportunity to have nine months, potentially um, one extra year of special education. Now, I know we were talking specifically about this court ruling, but I have to ask because we're still in this pandemic and we saw so much uh, education and services disrupted for many during the pandemic. Is Disability Rights Connecticut hearing from families uh, who feel like their child or children did not get the, the special education services that the law requires during the pandemic? Absolutely. We have been hearing that from students we have been hearing that from parents, and we've been hearing that from our fellow advocacy groups um, like the Connecticut Parent Advocacy Center, CPAC, um, and, and other organizations that also work with students throughout the state. Um, it's certainly been on the forefront of everyone's minds because we've seen how it's had an impact on all students. Um, and I, I really think that the conversation certainly could become a lot deeper and richer and more nuanced because the impact for students with disabilities, particularly those who have individualized educational programs that include one-on-one -on -one instruction, um, that include working through reading programs if a student may have dyslexia, for example, um, the impact on those students who haven't been able to get that same level of service um, or the services that they need to make progress in their education is really profound. And how we, um, how we get them back on track, how we continue to close those gaps that already existed is something that should be um, of paramount importance and really a, a big topic of conversation that's solution-based. Um, we know it's a problem. I think we just haven't quite heard from the state yet what they propose to do to um, solve that problem. Mm. That's surprising given that it's uh, July 20th and a new school year is just right around the corner. Uh, this is something that a lot of parents and advocates have been talking about since the start of the pandemic, especially if they have children with special education needs. Um, so are there convers when you talk about how you're hearing from a lot of families, I mean, are they getting anywhere with their local school districts or is there just a lot of roadblocks right now? What we're hearing from students and families is that they, um, they are running into roadblocks. They um, are not getting uh, meaningful answers to their questions about how their students, uh, how 
they themselves are going to have an opportunity to receive those services that they might not have been receiving for the past year, or um, even worse still for some students, how they might receive increased services because perhaps they have maybe regressed and aren't performing as well as they were before the pandemic. Um, I think school districts are grappling with what to do and how to do it. And unfortunately, that means that um, students and parents are not really getting um, meaningful responses about what the next steps are and what the plan is to address um, regression and address lost services. Mm. We know that uh, there's so much uh, federal aid that has come into uh, states, including Connecticut. When it comes to resources, is that at least uh, a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of uh, resources to help these students who have regressed that school districts will be able to meet their needs, Casey? I certainly hope so. I think that it is always helpful when districts receive additional funding um, to provide the services that students need to make progress in their education, um, particularly students in special education. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know that I've heard from a student or a parent that they feel really great about what has been offered by their district to um, address some of the lost services um, that resulted because of COVID. Um, I know some parents have been seeking compensatory education for that. And I'm hoping that districts with this additional funding um, will use it as an opportunity to provide compensatory education to those students who need it because they lost out mm -hmm. due, during the pandemic. Uh, Casey, getting back to uh, the um, issue that we invited you on to the show, again, this uh, court ruling uh, giving uh, students an additional year uh, for this compensatory education. What happens after 22? What services are available uh, to these residents with disabilities uh, once they get their, their uh, credit? So it depends on the student. Um, there are some students who have intellectual disabilities who may be eligible to receive services from the Department of Developmental Services, DDS. Um, and as part of that, there may be um, supported employment that is available. Um, and there may be, as part of someone's individual service plan, an opportunity to have someone help them if they wanted to go take a college course and continue their education. Um, for others, there is um, the Bureau of Rehabilitative Services, BRS. Um, it can provide uh, vocational rehabilitation support to individuals with disabilities. Um, and for some like AR, um, really having the extra time to pursue opportunities while she's still a student. Um, she had the opportunity to work in a library and, and it just gives someone a chance to experience what employment might be like so that they're better prepared when they enter the workforce um, to meet the challenges of a new job, to ask for accommodations where they need them um, and to understand how a work setting is going to impact them and what they need to do to be ready. Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason I was asking is we know in the past, you know, support programs uh, and funding that get slashed uh, over time. And so, again, wondering what that safety net is there for them, Casey. So for some students, there isn't much of a safety net at all. I've heard um, some parents um, describe it as a cliff 
um, if you're not someone who is eligible for um, Department of Developmental Services or um, are not eligible to receive vocational rehabilitation services, um, it really can be hard to find something. And certainly um, it is worth noting that it is an unfortunate realization once students leave their educational setting that the supports that are available to them um, in um, in the adult world 22 and beyond are um, a lot less robust um, and don't provide nearly as much as um, the the services that are available as part of their educational program. Mm You're supervising attorney at Disability Rights Connecticut. So this is a nonprofit doing this work in terms of uh, the workforce that you have uh, to meet the needs of all the people that need these concerns addressed, Casey. Um, yes, I uh, I wish that I could say we um, are able to represent every single person who calls into our office. But as you mentioned, um, we are a nonprofit and we're a small one at that. So that's a big part of the reason why we have decided to focus on work that can have a systemic impact. Um, While we may not be able to represent every individual who um, calls into our office, we do want to take on and represent individuals when their cases could result in systemic change that are really that's really going to have an impact on students and people with disabilities throughout the state. And so AR is a perfect example of how um, individual representation for her resulted in um, a great outcome for students with disabilities throughout the state. Casey Considine, again, Supervising Attorney at Disability Rights Connecticut. Thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you for the opportunity to make people aware about this exciting new court ruling. And we'll be tweeting out a link to Disability Rights Connecticut. So for listeners uh, who need some assistance, uh, this organization is also uh, here to help you. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, there's been a tension on government helping avoid an eviction crisis. Losing a safe place to live has other consequences beyond just not having a roof over your head. We talked to the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, also known as CHIT, about what researchers found when people are forced from their housing. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Senate Democrats hope to start pushing a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill this week. The measure could include money for everything from railroad upgrades to free community college. But how will the country pay for it? On the next Where We Live, Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy joins us to talk about this and more. What questions do you have for him? You can join us. That conversation tomorrow. There's been increased attention on how government can help avoid an eviction crisis. 
housing is considered one social determinant of health, and losing a safe place to live impacts a person's health in a negative way. The Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, recently wrote about what researchers found when people are forced from their housing. Joining us now on Zoom is Kate Farish. She's contributing writer for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, also known as CHIT, and she's a journalism professor at Central Connecticut State University. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Can you talk about this Yale study and what they were broadly looking at when they were at talking about the relationship or studying the relationship between health and housing? Yes. Um, researchers at Yale, Drexel, and American University have gotten over $3 million in federal funding to look at connections between uh, mass incarceration, evictions, other housing instability issues, and how it might affect uh, health. And um, I recently wrote about one aspect of their study that found a very interesting link between forced housing moves and risky sexual behavior. So much of uh, what we've been paying attention to is the pandemic's impact on different facets in our lives. But this study, was this actually before the pandemic? Yes, they had uh, enrolled 360 low-income New Haven residents in a study in 2017 and 2018. And they did do follow-ups. I believe they've done four or five follow-up interviews with many of the participants since then. And so what did they find, Kate? They found that forced housing moves, not just evictions, but other situations uh, related to landlords in which people had to move, uh, made some people in the study sexually vulnerable and actually less likely to be able to negotiate the use of condoms in a relationship. Uh, very interesting. They found that um, 4% of the 77 residents in the survey who had been um, forced to move uh, reported providing sex for a place to live. Uh, another 8% reported having sex in exchange for money or drugs. Mm. Now, when this study first uh, began, they were looking at people engaging in behaviors that might lead to risk of contracting HIV. And so when you hear that people uh, feel like they don't have any control um, over uh, this situation, what did researchers find in terms of contracting HIV, Kate? Well, I think it's too soon for them to have numbers on how many of these folks actually contracted HIV, but they did find clear connections between those facing housing instability and um, I guess I'd say a lack of power in relationships, a sexual vulnerability, people taking on multiple uh, sexual partners sometimes uh, to secure housing. I think that they are continuing to study this potential link to HIV infections over time. Now, when we talked about who participated in the study, uh, New Haven residents, how did they find them? Oh, it was really fascinating. They opened an office temporarily on the New Haven Green. They worked with um, city officials to find low-income residents, and they even fanned out in places like libraries and laundromats and put flyers up around the city. And um, they said it was surprisingly easy, uh, sadly, to find low-income residents in New 
Haven who were willing to come in and into their office and do the survey on a computer. Mm. And they also had a high retention rate over 80% uh, of the original 360 keep uh, kept coming back uh, to do the follow up surveys. You know, when you talked earlier about a percentage of these residents uh, who said that they felt like they were forced to have sex because they were in an uh, unstable housing situation or that they had to trade sex in order to have a place to live, people might think that this sounds like formal sex work or prostitution. But you know, when you talk to researchers, can you tell us more about what they told you about that, again, that dynamic that's at play when people you know, have nowhere to go? Certainly, this study um, did not purposely, and in fact did not, interview sex workers per se, but they did ask uh, people in the survey if they had traded um, sex for housing. And as I said, they found 4% of the 77 residents who had had a forced housing move uh, reported doing that. Um, they, one gentleman told one of the researchers, it's part of the rent in a sense that he felt uh, the woman he moved in with uh, to get stable housing, you know, that part of the deal was to have sex as part of the rent in a sense. So you could see that the people are fairly vulnerable and desperate, I would say, uh, after one of these moves. You're hearing Kate Farish here on Where We Live. She's a contributing writer for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, talking about what researchers found uh, when they surveyed people who had unstable housing and the decisions they had to make because they had no place to go. Now, again, this was done before the pandemic, uh, and I understand you spoke to an organization in New Haven that works with people who may be at high risk of contracting HIV or who are HIV positive. What was the reaction to the study's findings, Kate? I spoke with Chris Cole, executive director of APNH, A Place to Nourish Your Health, formerly the AIDS Project New Haven. And he said he did not find the study's uh, findings to be surprising. He said that his clients have told him that they have in fact traded sex for housing in the past. But he does plan to start asking new clients a little bit more about housing instability to find out if they have also gone through these landlord-related forced moves. When I talk about uh, housing instability, again, uh, when someone doesn't have a place to live and they might think that that means they're technically homeless and living on the street, but that's not the case, Kate, right? People find ways uh, to uh, live with someone they may know, they may couch surf, and that can also be unstable. Yes, absolutely. The, many of the people in this study reported perhaps being kicked out of their housing because they were using or selling drugs and then just hunting for somewhere to live and again in some cases trading sex for a place to live um it was really all manner of landlord related force moves that these researchers studied uh it might be as i said even landlords getting foreclosed on themselves and uh, really asking people to leave short of being an official eviction there's a lot of these forced moves and the researchers in a, it really felt that that was a void, that evictions had been studied, but not these other types of forced moves. Um, and they're going to continue to study that over time. 
uh, because the study, again, happened before the pandemic, and now we know that Connecticut's eviction moratorium has ended. And so what else will they be studying when you said that they'll be looking, uh, you know, in the future to the people that are at risk in terms of, you know, the assistance that's available. I know Connecticut has a program to help landlords and tenants, but I can't help but wondering how many people know about this or how to apply for it. Oh, that's a good question. I, I saw lots of news coverage um, June 30th when the uh, state eviction moratorium was ending and Governor Lamont speaking about that. Uh, Danya Keene, an associate professor at Yale School of Public Health, is one of the researchers in this project, um, which is known as Just House. And she's going to be looking at eviction policies during the pandemic and how they affected New Haven renters. That's uh, clearly one of the directions um, their study is going in. And CHIT will be interested to see what happens with that study. They also did do some surveys during the pandemic and have some new data. They're just still analyzing that data. Thanks to Kate Farish, contributing writer for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. We really appreciate your time, Kate. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>